0: Hi there and welcome to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host Karen Thomas and I want to thank you so much for being here with us today and uh, I appreciate you being a proactive parent and out there getting the resources that you need for your child's best uh, fulfilling life and their well-being. Um, as you know I, I was told once upon a time when my son was diagnosed with autism to drug him and try behavioral therapies and good luck that There would be really nothing we could do for him and we should be managing symptoms the rest of his life but fortunately my holistic background and doing craniosacral work and studying the brain it let me know that the brain can and does heal and i want you to know that that is a scientific fact but what we do have to do is get all of the toxins and the inflammation out of the way so that the brain can recover on its own. And there are so many pieces to autism recovery. Um, and today I want, want you to know too, after it's been 15 years since my son was diagnosed, but it took me a decade to figure it, figure it all out. Today, my son is no longer even diagnosable. So if I had listened to the naysayers and the people who told me that, uh, that he couldn't get better and I had listened to them, he wouldn't be better today. Now he's graduated college and he's happy and healthy and and living independently and and uh, he's he's fine and I just want to be able to share with you the resources so that you know that you can do as much as you can for your child but knowledge is the key and um, everybody's level of recovery is different but children who couldn't speak before are now speaking children who weren't ever sleeping through the night at all are now sleeping through the night. They can now focus in a classroom and learn. Um, kids who are irritable and anxious are now calm and relaxed. So it's about giving them a healthy and a happy life. And the very, very first step, in that really is, there's much more to it, but the first step is to heal the gut because the gut really controls the immune system and the brain. And the very first step, of course, with that is to get your child eating the right foods and healing the gut. And I know that, that that transition can be challenging. um, So we'll be helping you with that. But I want to first give you the resource to get my free guide to basically, I think the top seven foods to eliminate from your child's diet to Quickly and help help you reduce the symptoms of autism, and um, they do help to to calm and regulate. I've, I've had so many people tell me that their kids are sleeping better, they can think better, and it's just a simple free guide. To on the top seven foods to eliminate, and you can get that at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash seven foods, just the number seven and foods, and it's a simple guide that'll give you also some information about why those foods are the ones that you want to eliminate. So it's a little bit more than just the 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 listing of them. Um, It's a nice guide for you. And today we're going to be talking about um, something else that might actually be newer to you, um, which I think is always great to, to extend the knowledge it's it's a regarding heme and we're going to explain what heme is and the dysregulation that can happen with that and how it will interfere with your child's health and their recovery process and also we'll link that into mast cells which I've done a show episode on before and I will link to in today's show notes which will be at com forward slash 90 just nine zero and um, and we have an expert with us here today on this subject because uh, it's it's great to have help especially when something gets in depth like this one and we have dr beth o'hara who is a functional naturopath and she specializes in these complex and chronic immune conditions that are related to mast cell activation syndrome and histamine intolerance and she's the founder and owner of Mass Cell 360 which is a functional naturopathy practice designed to look at all the factors surrounding health conditions, whether it's genetic or epigenetic and biochemical and physiological physiological and environmental and emotional as well. And her uh, subspecialties are also mold and genetic analysis. And so she has designed her practice uh, uh, when around her, I'm gonna actually let let Dr. O'Hara explain her own story to you But she herself was severely ill with um, with mast cell activation syndrome. So uh, I would like to um, actually have have you explain that better, Dr. O'Hara. I mean, how did you get into this. I mean, thank you, first of all, for being here with us. And then how did you get into all of this? Um, I mean, what, I mean, maybe give us a little background on your story as well, because I think it would be helpful for our listeners.
1: Sure. And thank you so much for having me back. And I just really appreciate that we can work together to get this information that's so hard to find out to parents. And how I stumbled into all of this is that I was so ill and I was a mystery to every practitioner I walked in the door of. Um, I had autism myself, so I identified with being on the Asperger's end of the spectrum. And like your son today, I would not probably be diagnosable either. But when I was growing up, I had just these number of issues that happened. I was hit in the, kicked in the head by a horse, had a traumatic brain injury. My family moved into an old farmhouse that was full of toxic mold, and I had numerous tick exposures, and I had Lyme, Bartonella, and Babesia. So you put all of that together, and you're going to get strange symptoms that traditional medicine doesn't normally know what to do with, which is what happened in my case. So I you know, I counted up, I stopped counting, and at over 50 practitioners that I had seen. I had such strange symptoms really bizarre um, kind of lightning bolt type of pains and burning pains. My bones hurt, my teeth hurt, my hair follicles hurt. And people would tell me your hair follicles can't hurt. And I would tell them, well, my hair follicles hurt.
0: Yeah, well, they do.
1: The- so <laughs> They can, right? And yeah. the, the pain would be so intense that I remember somebody asking me, Well, name one part of your body that doesn't hurt. And I, I can't. There's, there's not a single part that's not in, in intense pain. Wow. One of the strangest things that happened was every about January, maybe late January, early February, sometimes late February. I would develop this intense nausea and be hardly able to eat at all. The pain would get much worse. I had chronic anxiety, but I would start having panic attacks. And sometimes this would progress into having, you know, symptoms that might be considered psychosis. I would have hallucinations, and I, I knew they were hallucinations, but I couldn't stop them. It took me a very long time to figure out what was going on with that and where I started putting the pieces together was finding other people that were having some similar patterns It may not have had the kind of timeline that I did. And I still am not exactly sure why mine came very late winter every year, but I would come across people in my practice. As I healed, I went back to graduate school. I developed the practice that I run today. And I'd find other people that would have this intense pain. They would have a lot of anxiety. The abdominal pain feels like having a million butterflies in your stomach. So it's like, for me, that kind of, you know, that feeling you'll get in your abdomen when you're about to do something exciting or important, or you're going to go on stage, but it's multiplied so many times. And I was running into people that would, describe things like that and these supplement sensitivities medication sensitivities and the big clincher was that they could not decrease their carbohydrates without getting really really sick
0: yeah these are ringing a lot of bells in my head about certain things i mean late winter you know maybe it's getting there's more mold Um, abdominal pain is associated with mold and then of course Babesia and Bartonella from Lyme and things like that. I definitely, we we want to jump back into this. When we come back, we're going to take a really short break and then um, uh, stay with us. We'll be right back and we'll we'll get back into um, having you go into this further because I know that there are a lot of parents that are really um, listening and a lot of people who have experienced these same issues and they mimic the symptoms of autism as well. So we're going to take a short break right here. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: Have you ever wondered why some children recover from the their symptoms of autism while others never seem to get any better after 13 years of research Karen Thomas has recovered her own son from his symptoms of autism naturally she now shares how she did it with you in her free webinar so that you can have the right resources and knowledge to help your child The definition of recovery is to regain health. Karen offers this to you in four stages. Healing the gut, natural heavy metal detoxification, balancing the co-infections of autism, brain support, and repair. Register now for this free webinar to help you know what you can do to help your child to sleep better, be more calm, improve focus, and reach their fullest potential to live a happy, healthy life. Go to naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash free workshop empowering parents with the resources to naturally recover autism from a mom who's done it hi
0: there and welcome back to naturally recovering autism i'm your host karen thomas and today we are talking with dr beth o'hara on the subject of the autism heme dysregulation and mast cell link which we're going to get more into into detail about uh in the episode today but uh, Dr. Harry, you were giving us some information about y- your past and a lot of symptoms that I think a lot of parents have experienced for themselves possibly and for uh, their children with autism. So, you know, you had mentioned you had mold sensitivity. You know, you had uh, Lyme uh, exposure, uh, various things too, and, and some of the symptoms you were experiencing. So can you just kind of take off, you know, go where you um, continue where you left off?
1: Sure. So... There are all of these people with health issues who keep falling through the cracks. And one of the one of my missions is to help the, as many people who fall through the cracks as possible. And this is one of those areas, this heme dysregulation where people are not getting recognized in a lot of traditional practices, but also alternative practices. And what we were just talking about was this classic piece of when carbs are reduced, and particularly kids on the spectrum, many of them will eat a lot of carbs, a lot of sugar, and of course, we know that that's not good for the gut, we know that that's not good for blood sugar, it's not good to infec- for infections, but a telltale sign is if when those carbohydrates are reduced, sugar is reduced, symptoms start getting worse, either constipation or diarrhea gets worse, pain gets worse, sleep gets worse, Then it's time to take a look at, well, is this this kind of heme pathway dysregulation? So what that means is there's a pathway in our bodies and it comes off of what's called the Krebs cycle or citric acid cycle, which basically is where our foods, our fats, our carbohydrates, our proteins get converted down into that cellular energy called ATP. And some people may be familiar with that. Well, there's a branch off of that pathway that produces heme, and heme is a base molecule for hemoglobin, which is the the heme protein that most people are going to be familiar with, and hemoglobin delivers oxygen through the red blood cells. But there are other types of oxygen delivery molecules in the body, like myoglobin and so on. Heme also is needed to form the phase one detoxification enzymes called CYP450 enzymes. So if we think about that, if we have an issue with that pathway, we're not making oxygen delivery molecules, we're not making detox molecules, and this heme protein also makes a number of antioxidant molecules in the body. This pathway gets affected when we have mold toxicity, we have things like Lyme, other types of chronic infections. And the body does this intentionally. So there's a process called the cell danger response where when we have chronic toxins, we have chronic pathogens, the body starts to slow down particular pathways or stop them entirely to keep those pathogens from replicating and protect us. But when it gets past a particular point, the body's not able to recover that cell danger response on its own. And at that point, when you pass that threshold, then that's where people need interventions to be able to heal. They may not be able to heal on their own just with things like rest and good diet. So when this heme pathway gets disrupted, we get buildups of these intermediates in that pathway. And these intermediates are called porphyrins. And there's a condition that's known in traditional medicine called porphyria. In traditional medicine, porphyria is seen as a rare genetic condition that causes a buildup of these toxins, these porphyrins in the body. And when these porphyrins lodge in different places, they'll cause pain. They'll disrupt GABA by blocking the GABA receptors. So that contributes to the anxiety. They'll affect the vagal nerve, and that affects the ability to have normal bowel movements that can also contribute to anxiety and sleep issues. The problem is traditional medicine sees that as a black or white condition. You either have the traditional porphyria, which has a particular cutoff with very, very high levels of porphyrins. And so again, they'll only recognize that if there's a their specific genetic variance or if there is significant mercury or lead toxicity. But it's not, you know, as we know, Karen, like in in all of these conditions we look at, and even with autism, there's no like, well, this is the cutoff, and if you're two points below that, you don't have autism. We know that this is a spectrum itself along the severity of symptoms. So we see the same thing with this heme dysregulation. And so what it's being called in more holistic circles is subclinical porphyria, meaning that it's below the threshold of traditional medicine would recognize. In this subclinical porphyria, we've talked about some of the symptoms that might be seen. Kind of generalized burning is a common symptom that's associated with it. And people can also experience skin symptoms, but not everyone. If there are skin symptoms, it's from the porphyrin's lodging in the skin or being excreted through the skin. And those perfurins are triggered by UV light. And so under fluorescent lights or under sunlight, people can get intense burning. I've seen people have um, blisters and a lot of skin pain from those perfurins being released. But there are a lot of people like myself who've had issues with this pathway that don't get those skin symptoms. Now, the good thing to know is that For most people with this subclinical issue with the heme pathway, it's not a forever problem. It is manageable. And the big key to managing it and addressing it is really figuring out what these root causes are that we always talk about. What is triggering it? What is the toxicity? What is the pathogen? And not everyone with mold toxicity has this issue. Not everyone with Lyme has this issue but I do see it in about 10% of people in my practice. So when that's the case, then we have to start addressing mold and addressing Lyme from a different angle. We can't charge in as quickly. We have to go more gently and in my practice anyway, and a lot of kids on the spectrum are pretty sensitive, so we need to be gentle anyway. But with people that are dealing with this issue, may not be able to go low carb or do intermittent fasting until this is more addressed. So that could throw them into an attack if we take them into intermittent fasting or low carb too quickly
0: this is really interesting I, I actually have or have had um, a lot of these symptoms that you're talking about as well and i'm sure that a lot of parents are recognizing this too um, so we need to take a, a short break right here but I, I can't wait to jump back in stay with us we will be right back hi there and welcome to naturally recovering autism or welcome back i am your host karen thomas and uh, today we're talking about the autism heme dysregulation and mass cell link and we have dr beth o'hara with us and we've been talking about these subclinical symptoms that you can look for and some things that trigger them like mold and lime and various toxins but if you're you know if you're trying to do especially uh, I think I'm thinking Dr. O'Hara if you're thinking i'm thinking about the anti-candida diet you know where we're removing the carbs and the sugars because we don't want to feed the candida and we want to start healing up the leaky gut so if you're noticing that some of these kids are getting or people will get sort of triggered if that happens um, i'm curious what you're uh, what you have found and you say these things have to be worked with very gently which i have seen i I always call it kind of a pans flare-up when these toxins start releasing and you know there maybe aren't enough binders in place or the child just really um, has uh, uh, enough of an immunity issue or autoimmune autoimmunity issue that a pan's episode can get triggered so i'm just curious how how you you know of course we gently need to work through this so that we don't dump a lot of toxins at once and cause a big flare-up so what do you how do you work with these with all of this, actually, with all of these questions, I'm curious about the low carbon sugar as well. Yeah, it gets fairly tricky. And I know you've
1: been talking about candida here. And I I do want to clarify that not everyone with autism has this issue. And so we're looking at the kids that are having poor response to that candida diet. If kids with autism can go on the candida diet and can do these things more quickly, that's absolutely fantastic and great. There's no reason to hold them back. But if parents are noticing that in lowering their children's carb intake, their sugar intake, that they're getting more more pain, more sleep disruption, particularly more constipation, if they're complaining about abdominal pain or back pain, and it can be hard to sort out because when you start killing off Candida, you're gonna get toxins as well. But we have to keep in mind that one of the reasons to go slowly on these pathogen killing processes even if it's starting a a diet like that is whenever you kill off candida or bacteria or whatever in the body those organisms are going to produce toxins and if we get too many of those toxins then we can start to get more of this heme pathway shut down so it becomes a real balancing act when candida is present one of the things that can be helpful is using something like tapioca dextrose so dextrose is another word for glucose and glucose goes through this pathway and then it has an inhibiting effect on the beginning of the heme pathway which means that the glucose will actually slow down the buildup of these toxic porphyrin so sometimes for kids they will have to maintain a moderate carbohydrate diet. They may not be able to go too slow. And then if there is a flare in some of these symptoms and they're feeling really bad, if you notice increases in panic, or if there is psychosis or worsening OCD, a really good way to see if this is going on or at least get kind of a somewhat of a, of a clue, it won't be completely definitive, but a clue would be then to do some tapioca dextrose, maybe a tablespoon or two tablespoons. If that calms those symptoms down a good bit, then that's a good sign that this may be going on for that child. And the reason I say tapioca dextrose is because corn, most dextrose is from corn, so a lot of kids on the autism spectrum have corn sensitivities. Um, One thing to note, though, is that tapioca is in the latex family. So if a kid has latex sensitivity, depending on how severe that is, the tapioca dextrose might have to switch to something else. Most sugar, though, that kids eat is sucrose. So sucrose is only half glucose and then it's half fructose. So it won't be as effective as if you can use um, dextrose alone. Now, if a child is really in an intense attack and their parent knows that this is what's going on, so there's just intense pain, lots of screaming or crying, one of the things that they can try if they have a practitioner who understands this and um, can do IVs would be a glucose IV, or sometimes it's called a dextrose IV. And that will usually calm this attack down very, very quickly within can be 10 minutes to an hour. So that's something for parents who have kids that they know are dealing with this issue to have in their back pocket and to line up a practitioner who could do that for them. So I've had a few people who pushed too fast themselves, the people that had this issue and they pushed too fast on a killing protocol or they had a stomach flu and they couldn't eat for a couple of days and they ended up in a significant attack. And they did get this glucose IV at a a local urgent care through their local practitioner. That helped immensely. They said they felt better than they had their whole lives. Now, the other side of that is we're going to get some blood sugar imbalances. And if we're not careful, we can start to increase some candida. So again, it's this balancing act of keeping these symptoms managed while you address the root cause. And sometimes for people with these conditions, it means that we have to get binders on board by doing a sprinkle every third day. And that may be what they can tolerate. Charcoal is often a good option in this issue because charcoal will bind porphyrins. And so if they can do a little sprinkle of charcoal, and it's a balancing act in increasing these binders and also increasing any kind of killing agents, whether we're talking about herbs or we're talking about nystatin or whatever is being used so that we don't have too many toxins being liberated
0: so if somebody is on because yeah it's really important for parents to know even just by switching the diet you're starving out the candida and as the die-off or herxheimer reaction uh, the die-off starts happening kids can get a lot worse before they get better and binders are crucial i find alternating various binders is helpful and then like you mentioned activated charcoal is excellent for especially for those few days of really heightened episodes um so charcoal is best for binding to the porphyrin so uh using that you said a sprinkle every few days not every day for a couple of days while you're really in the heightened episodes or were you just kind of mentioning different ways to do it
1: well, see, this is where it gets so tricky, and it helps mm-hmm. to have a practitioner yeah. working with you, with you because it depends. Well, what other toxins are there? How many mold toxins are right. the types of mold toxins that get bound by charcoal? Because the the binders will help bind what's in the system, but they can also start drawing some of the toxins out of the tissues, and the binders also don't bind fully. So they can drop a little bit of those toxins. And that's why we have to go careful, carefully. So some people may do fine with a little bit daily. I have some people that can't do a single sprinkle of charcoal every day. So they every third day approach is an option. And sometimes people don't even think of going that slowly because it seems like, well, that couldn't possibly do anything, couldn't possibly get you anywhere. But it, but it can, really going that slowly. And I had to do that with myself. I had such severe supplement sensitivity. Medication sensitivity is another good indicator that there may be something going on. There's a great website called the Porphyria Drug Database. And you can just Google that, Porphyria Drug Database. And it'll come up and you can put in any any medication that triggers that pathway. So if your child has had a lot of medication Reaction. So, for example, I had a reaction to a medication where I took an eighth of a tablet and my body temperature dropped to about 94 degrees, which is way too low, can't sustain that low. And I was shaking. My husband had to pick me up and put me in a hot tub. I couldn't walk to the tub by myself. And that was a tiny, tiny bit. And that's when it became really clear there was something not right with my pathways. Well, you look that you medication took, up in that database. It's a pain pathway trigger. Mm-hmm. What medication was it? Um, this medication was Depakote, mm-hmm. and
2: okay. if we look up but in basically that database,
1: if we look up in that database, you can look and there are number ones that will will show as more likely to trigger. You can look for patterns there.
0: Okay, I'm going to add it to uh, the show notes page, I'll I'll link to it, because I think that would be really helpful for parents to know they even wonder sometimes if their child is already on a medication, um, certain contraindications, so that would be really helpful for them to know, and if you know, can know if a medication your child is on is actually causing them more problems than helping them, which is really key as well we're going to take a very short break right here you're listening to naturally recovering autism stay with us we'll be right back hi there and welcome back to naturally recovering autism i am your host karen thomas and today we are talking with dr beth o'hara about the autism heme dysregulation and we're going to talk a little bit too about the mast cell link uh, to that so what I really would like to know, Dr. O'Hara, we've talked about what is the heme pathway, but what causes this pathway dysregulation? And then also, how does it affect the the pathway dysregulation cause issues in autism? Can you give us a little background on those? Sure. So
1: there are eight enzymes in this pathway, and there are different genes associated with, so eight different genes associated with this pathway. There can be genetic variants in that pathway that can predispose people to issues with this pathway. Although, sometimes I see people with heme dysregulation issues and they don't have those genetic variants. We talked about some of the biggest triggers, mold toxicity, Lyme, Bartonella, Babesia, any of those co-infections. Some of the other triggers are, one, nutrient imbalances. there are a number of nutrients that are needed for that pathway. And if they're not there, then when fats, carbs, and proteins are flowing down to that pathway, if the right nutrients aren't there to create the conversion, you can get these porphyrin buildup. And I bring that up because we see a number of kids on the autism spectrum who are eating a very limited diet because of maybe texture issues or their stomachs bother them when they're eating whatever it is, that they may be missing some really key nutrients. I don't see that as much as a trigger outside of the autism population, but I do see it more in that autism population. Toxic metals are another big trigger. Mercury and lead are the best known ones, but some of the other toxic metals can also trigger that pathway as well. Another trigger is glyphosate that key ingredient in Roundup that is disrupting so many parts of our bodies. And Stephanie Seneff is an incredible researcher on the effects of glyphosate in the human body. And she talks about how glyphosate disrupts glycine. And glycine is needed for the heme pathway. So if we don't have glycine, we're not even going to go down that pathway at all. And then a few things to think about, so we think about those triggers and then we think again about the effects of it. So the effects of having heme pathway dysregulation are these buildup of preferens and the symptoms that they cause, but also reduction in phase one detoxification, reduction in things like nitric oxide synthase that create nitric oxide in the body, reduction in some of these other antioxidant enzymes in the body because they're all heme-based where this affects people with autism particularly a lot of the symptoms we see in autism and we know that autism is this neuroinflammatory condition so these porphyrins will block the gaba receptors and we know that gaba is a calming neurotransmitter and we need it to stay calm whereas glutamate is the kind of works in tandem with GABA and glutamate is this neuro excitatory neurotransmitter a lot of people on the spectrum have too much glutamate now I know there are some that have too little but a lot of people I see in my practice have too much glutamate so if we block the GABA receptors the body won't be able to utilize its GABA but it also creates a secondary effect of more glutamate as well. So that's going to trigger more neural inflammation. That's going to trigger anxiety, panic, these kinds of these kinds of symptoms. These profferins will also trigger the mast cells. So we've got perference triggering or blocking GABA receptors, and we've got perference triggering mast cell activation. And mast cells, we've talked about, create inflammation. And they're one of the major inflammatory-producing cells in the body. They do that in order to protect us. And when they're functioning properly, they do that very well, and we can't live without them. But when they're over-triggered, then we get too much inflammation. There's a lot of mast cells in the brain. So I remember when we talked about this before, Karen, when we talked just about the mast cell autism link, that probably 75 percent or more you and i talked about maybe everyone on the autism spectrum has mast cell activation because of all of these mast cells in the brain and this inflammatory central nervous system issue that's going on and then we just kind of start to look at the other angles of it well mold toxins trigger the mast cells lyme and the toxins that those bacteria create those co-infections trigger the mast cells So we get this multifactorial kind of mess going on in the body. And it takes, especially when people have these issues and they've got all of these sensitivities, it takes a lot of patience and going very, very slowly. And again, this is where people may need interventions you wouldn't think of like increasing the carbohydrates, increasing things like glucose temporarily to get this calm back down so that then you can go back to slowly getting the supports needed on board to manage these conditions.
0: Yeah, this is really, It's really important. I see so much of this uh, in the kids that and, and the families that I work with, and uh, and all of these things are that are being triggered. It's just it just makes so much more sense. And I will I'll link to the show that we did on mast cells uh, that that we did you and I did together, uh, Dr. O'Hara, so we can. Um, uh, parents who are listening now can get a lot more information on the mast cells themselves but um this carbon glucose piece is really interesting to add in a little bit like you said said and and how how all of this the activation and so many of these kids have the mold uh, biotoxin issue and they say close to a hundred percent of children with autism have lyme's disease and it can be contracted even in utero passed on from mom or passed on in breast milk and it doesn't even have to be ticks anymore it can be you know horse flies and mosquitoes and sand fleas so um and because of global warming these bugs are becoming uh, a lot more virulent so we're seeing a lot more of that and it it's it's missed so often in, in blood tests so So it's important that parents are really aware of these symptoms to look for as well because you don't want to just rely on a test because i find so many of the tests end up being inaccurate and like you found i can't believe you went to 50 practitioners or so and and you know there were so many people who missed things Um, I, i had a lot of that experience myself with my son when he was young we're going to take a very short break right here. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Stay with us. We will be right back. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I am your host Karen Thomas, and today we're talking with Dr. Beth O'Hara on the autism heme dysregulation and mast cell link. And Dr. O'Hara, we, wa- we talked about you know it. I really always really really stress this as I can't stress it enough as you are with parents to say go slowly. So many are you know so eager and i i understand that as a parent who went through it to get your child better that you want to do more and you think that doing more faster is going to be better but this is where it's better to go slow it's just that uh, saying of go slow to go fast is better um, it's very important that you detoxify very slowly make sure your child's body's keeping up with what you're doing they have binders in place that you're watching their symptoms and you have support again to know what to do uh, when these types of flare-ups happen because there are a lot of pieces that, that go into all of this and in dr harry you were talking to you said nutritional deficiencies earlier and that is really really common in children with autism well, that's why at the beginning of this show I give the link to my my seven foods guide, those top seven foods to quickly eliminate uh, or to eliminate from your child's diet because um, there are a lot of nutritional deficiencies and a lot of that comes from children only eating like two or three foods and they can be really bad foods and, and the parents are having trouble getting any healthy foods into their children. So um, I know that heme can go along with... Uh, you know, iron and anemia deficiency sometimes. So if we could just look at that um, a little bit, I just wanted to, to know what your um, what you have to say about that aspect.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's also another link here with these issues. The last step in this team pathway, so we've got these eight steps in this pathway. And the last step is where the kind of the container that's being built in this pathway. What goes in the middle of that container um, that is going to become heme is iron, an iron molecule. So heme in the human body is iron-based. Now, there has been some confusion online that humans can take um, chlorella or chlorophyll and because that has heme, but it has plant heme, which is magnesium-based. So it's not actually a substitute for human heme. Human heme is always iron based and the iron has to be in what's called the reduced form. So basically iron will be used for a number of processes in the body and then it becomes in the oxidized form. So this is a three plus molecule is what it's called. And then it has to get recycled back into the two plus state. Well, a lot of people with chronic inflammation have that iron stuck in an inflammatory state, and we did a whole show on this if any of the parents want to go back and listen to this about the iron dysregulation. But some of the things that you might see if this condition is here and one of the problems with it is iron is you'll see either very, very high ferritin or very low ferritin, and high ferritin for kids really is anything above about 60 or 70. So the lab ranges are much broader than what is optimal for people. So the lab ranges are looking at extreme dysfunction, but we're looking at this dysregulation area. Also, you can see some of the other iron type markers might be off like transferrin or TIBC, UIBC, total iron and so on. So that can mean that iron is not getting recycled into this reduced form that's needed to form that heme. Also, sometimes what you'll see on tests are low hemoglobin, not always, but if the body is really struggling to produce heme, and this has gotten particularly bad, then the hemoglobin will be at the low end of the range or below the range. So that's a, that's a clue. This isn't the only thing that could cause low hemoglobin, but it is is a major factor. One of the other things I wanted to tell parents is that if you go to a traditional um, medical practitioner and you say, okay, I think my child has porphyria, they are probably not going to take you seriously because, again, traditional medicine only recognizes that cutoff of these really severe areas. Um, Some... Some holistic practitioners will know about subclinical porphyria, not very many. And this is an area that there are a few practitioners that are working in. It's very tricky to work in, but don't get discouraged if you go to a traditional medical practitioner and they tell you there's no way that your child could be dealing with this. One of the ways to test for this, do you want me to go there, Karen? Or did you sure.
0: Have a yeah, no, I, I, you know, it's, I'm so glad that you've mentioned that because, because if somebody doesn't have the textbook uh, symptoms, sometimes they'll say, oh, no, that's not going on. And it, it very well can be. I also think it's important if you can just touch on it a little bit, and I will link to the episode we did on iron, but that we don't want to just you know, start really heavily supplementing with iron either, because there are contraindications to that. Maybe you could just briefly mention a little bit of that. And I know it, it uh, can affect things like, you know, candida, but it's also um, not all absorbed. And, you know, and sometimes people are given uh, a lot of iron supplementation. So maybe that with testing, right. if you could, yeah, talk on that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Karen. So many times when you see low ferritin, then kids will be put on an iron supplementation. The problem is that ferritin is only a marker for iron in the bloodstream, and 90% of our iron is stored in the tissues. So unless there's a muscle biopsy, which most kids don't want to do a muscle biopsy for good reason, it's hard to know what the actual iron levels in the tissues are. This is why it's important to have somebody that can look at these other iron markers and also look at the red blood cell markers, see if those are starting to look off, because if you start supplementing with iron, the, the iron in supplements is not a very well absorbed or bioavailable form. And it's going to be in that more oxidized state that we were talking about. So this iron in this oxidized state in the body, this is similar to if you take a cast iron skillet, you put it out in the in your front yard in the rain. And if you leave it out there for a while, it's going to rust. So rusting is a form of, oxidation and that's what's happening with an iron supplement so you can get a lot more increase in inflammation so you want to be really thoughtful about when to do an iron supplementation that might make sense if the ferritin is very very low the hemoglobin is very low there's no energy and the red blood cell markers are off but a lot of practitioners, if just the ferritin is low, they're, they're putting people on iron. And I'm seeing a number of problems with that. And there's increased risks of cardiovascular issues, increased risk of cancer. Like you mentioned, Karen, that iron is going to feed these pathogens. So you can get increased growth of these pathogens. So better sources of heme-based iron are um, beef. But we know a lot of beef is aged, so it's higher histamine. But if you can find an unaged beef, Beef liver is the best form of bioavailable iron because it's in the form of heme iron, but can be problematic and tricky to get kids to have that. But there are some high quality beef liver supplements that are being capsules.
0: Right. And so. Some of these, um, like you said, the heme-based foods, there are some uh, some that are really, uh, really helpful because you want to build up these natural blood cells, the blood cells naturally. And um, if you can do that through nutrition, through food, it's usually the best way to do it in the body. Uh, we need to take a short break right here, but we're going to come back. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Stay with us. We
2: will see you in a moment. Have you ever wondered why some children recover from their symptoms of autism while others never seem to get any better after 13 years of research karen thomas has recovered her own son from his symptoms of autism naturally she now shares how she did it with you in her free webinar so that you can have the right resources and knowledge to help your child The definition of recovery is to regain health. Karen offers this to you in four stages. Healing the gut, natural heavy metal detoxification, balancing the co-infections of autism, brain support, and repair. Register now for this free webinar to help you know what you can do to help your child to sleep better, be more calm, improve focus, and reach their fullest potential to live a happy, healthy life. Go to naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash Free workshop, empowering parents with the resources to naturally recover autism from a mom who's done it.
0: Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we're talking with Dr. Beth O'Hara on the autism heme dysregulation and mast cell link and i will link to all show notes today at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 90 nine zero, uh, because there are a few links that uh, i think will be really helpful for you past episodes we've done and some other things and in this last segment uh, we're, we're we just have a few minutes left but dr hara i'd really like to have you touch on on some of the testing that's available that parents could do for, or anybody could do to see uh, to see if they might have heme dysregulation sure so
1: LabCorp does have a urinary porphyrin test and if people can get an order written by their medical practitioner that's an option there's all there are also um, some other labs that do this one of the best is health diagnostics and research institute they have a really good porphyrin panel and actually they have a KPU panel. So there are two different kinds of tests that have to be done. There's a porphyrins panel like LabCorp has, Great Plains runs this, Dr. Data does. And then there's a KPU panel, this stands for cryptopyrroles. Cryptopyrroles are a precursor for these porphyrins and they can cause issues too. It's part of this heme pathway dysregulation and they have to be measured differently. And that's probably the element that if parents have heard about this, they've heard of the cryptopyrroles or pyroluria. That's an element of this condition. So those are two different tests. And when parents are collecting the urine, it has to stay, it's a 24 hour collection. It has to stay in the fridge, has to stay covered out of light. So it has to be like an opaque jug. And then a lot of times they'll also still cover that in foil. And it has to be kept chilled on the way to the lab. Um, or these labs like Great Plains or Dr. Data will give details on whether to freeze it and so on. So those are some of the ways to look at it. But I see a lot of times people will be elevated in the upper half of the range, but they not, may not be over the range. So that top of the range, again, is for the classic traditional porphyria, but we're looking at the subclinical area and what we're discussing here today.
0: So parents could maybe get results back and their doctor might say you don't really have, your child doesn't have this issue going on because they don't meet the standard textbook criteria yet you're saying if they know, if the parents are noticing these symptoms then it's very likely they could have the subclinical level of it?
1: Exactly, right. So if you've got these symptoms, you've got improvements with carbohydrates and an um, easing of symptoms with carbohydrates And then on one of these tests, it's best to get them, if you can, during an acute attack, when the child is feeling really bad, or the next day. Um, And sometimes you have to do uh, two or three rounds of the testing because it won't always capture it. It depends on when the body's excreting these porphyrins, and the body will go through kind of stages of excretion and then storage
0: in the tissues and then excretion again. So I'm just wondering rather than parents going through all of these tests that could be inaccurate results or or you know, subclinical levels, what about parents maybe really just looking at symptoms and noticing that if their child is changing um, for the better if they add in a tiny bit of glucose or uh, the tapioca uh, dextrose that you mentioned like a tiny bit of that and they or they add a little bit of carb back in they notice their child calms down then basically um, i'm wondering that they can really save themselves time and money and effort from going through that and then if they can really recognize the symptoms on their own and if we know that these these detox pathways need to be basically healed up and we're working with that naturally anyway, then aren't we leading to a lot of these pathways getting recovered I- anyway? I mean, is, is this accurate? Right. If it's not
1: too severe, then I think that's a really good approach. If it is really severe, it would be helpful to rule it out. And then if parents can only do one test, I would do that KPU, cryptopyro test because that can be addressed with zinc b6 and magnesium so that one is an easier one to dress and you might get even more benefits quicker by looking at that so that would be my priority test if parents could just do one
0: yeah i know kpu tests are, are and the the the, the zinc copper ratios can be really off in the kpu test as well correct correct yes that's
1: exactly mm-hmm. right
0: yeah, I, I, that's what I'm usually having them look for. It's nice to know about this whole other uh, aspect of it um, that we've talked about today. Uh, we are unfortunately out of time. This has been a really interesting episode, Dr. O'Hara. I really want to appreciate, I really appreciate you being here. I want to thank you. I know you're busy too for taking your time and giving us your expertise and uh, for being here with us today. And I will link to uh, to Dr. O'Hara's uh website as well, which is mastcell360.com on the show notes, which again, will be at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 90. Again, thank you, Dr. O'Hira, And thank you, everyone for being here today and uh, take care of yourself. And we'll see you next week.